have your all-sufficient word to turn to. We do not have to rely on ourselves. We don't have to rely on our feelings and our impressions and all those things that can so often lead us astray. We have the all-sufficient word of God. It has everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, as we remind ourselves of that, Lord, may we all take inventory of how we handle the word of God. Or even if we do handle the word. We want to be men and women, boys and girls, young people of the word, Lord. There's so much joy there. There's stability there. There's not a second guessing of what's going to happen, Lord. We know you from your word. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have our opportunity to look at that this morning. Lord, we do thank you for those who are here. Um, as we've mentioned, Lord, we've lost some folks this week. And, and as you tarry, Lord, um, you take home dear ones to you. And we pray for their family members who are left behind. Give them comfort. And we pray that they are now standing in your presence, fully uh, amazed at your glory. Be with all those who have suffered loss this year, Lord. Give them strength. Trust you in those times of trial, Lord. Thank you for our missionaries. So glad to have missionaries through this week and to hear from ministries around the globe, Lord. We ask that you continue to bless them and strengthen them. Give them favor in their lands and their the nations that they serve in, Lord, may you continue to use them greatly, Lord. Father, we pray for those even in our midst who are now pursuing missions, those who are being stewarded to go to those unreached people groups, Lord. I pray that you would help them, strengthen them, provide for them, Lord. May we be encouraged by them as well. Now, Lord, we turn to your word. May it jump off the pages to us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name. my way into November to really settle in and kind of teach on the church of why we love God's people. But we're building a flat platform here. We love Christ, and, and we have spoke of that the last couple of Sundays. And this morning I want to focus on his word, and that's such an important thing. And, and I want to start with that you can't separate Christ from his word. Uh, you can't say, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't believe his word or all of it. Uh, uh, you can't say, oh, I love the word, but I'm not sure about the Christ of the word. They come together. But this is such an important issue when we come to understanding the sufficiency of scriptures. If you leave out the sufficiency of scriptures, if we do not search the scriptures, and, and, and really, as the Bible commands us, in every area of our lives, we are left to being subject to our own thoughts, our own feelings, and even our own, what we, in some people, some circles say, our own impressions that we may say they're of God. That can be very dangerous. Extremely dangerous in a lot of ways. The Bible teaches us to lean heavily upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Lean upon his word. It has what we need for life and godliness. When this is not done, people are often hurt. They're given bad counsel because the word of God is not Search. There's a great example of this in a hero of mine who failed early on in his ministry in the 18th century. Many of you know George Whitfield. He was one of the spearheads of the Great Awakening that swept, swept through the Western culture. Um, just an amazing, significant time of growth, particularly in the United States, of the church, but it even made the jump over into Europe. Whitfield was just a riveting preacher. If you've ever read his biographies, I really encourage you. There's a two-volume one by Dolomir, uh, my favorite one on him. It'll hold you captive as you read the biography of this man. He was considered one of the greatest preachers in church history. But early on, he struggled with the balance of his gifts and the understanding of the scriptures. He was a tremendous orator. He could speak greatly, but he was wrestling with the strength and the power of the scriptures above his own gifts. In the late eight, uh, excuse me, 1743, he was married and now expecting his first child uh, with his wife Elizabeth. They anticipated that God was going to do something great with his son. Whitfield said, quote, I have received a great impression from God that my son will be like John the Baptist. Thus we'll name him John Whitfield, and his own wife was Elizabeth as well. You could see where he was going with this. 
He was so excited about this that after he was born, George baptized his son before a very large crowd. He preached a sermon on all the great things and great work that God was going to do through his son. Certainly, this raised the eyebrows of those who held to the sophisticacy of scriptures, but nonetheless, he ignored them. Four months after the birth of John, he died of a seizure, immediately starting his life out. Of course, the Whitfields were devastated. They were grief-stricken. But George fell under tremendous conviction. Tremendous conviction how he had wrongly counted his inner impulses, his inner longings for something that he wanted far above what God's word was teaching. In fact, he said in his writings, he essentially equated his words to be equal with God's words. He realized that he had even led his congregation. They had picked up on it. And many people began to say they had a word from God. They had an impression. It still happens today. There's whole movements of it. It happens in this church. These are not from God, and George figured that out. He'd interpreted his own feelings. He, he misunderstood. He had a powerful, fatherly pride and joy for his son, which was nothing wrong with that. And yet he relied on his own word, inward impressions. Not long after this, if you read his biography, he speaks of a wrenching prayer that he wrote down for himself. The prayer is quite lengthy, but in it he said, May God render this mistaken parent more cautious, more sober-minded, more word-of-God-minded. And then he said this, More experienced in Satan's devices. This was in his own prayer. And then be more useful for the labors to the church. These things happen. It's because we don't trust the word of God. We don't read it enough. We don't spend enough time in it. And pretty soon, God's word has somehow become equal to our words. And we would never say that out loud as good Christians. But in fact, that's often what we do when we give counsel outside of God's word. And this is the great difference between biblical counseling and your own thoughts or your own impressions. The word of God is not equal <laughs> to our words. Thank the Lord. <laughs> We're wrong. You ever been wrong? <laughs> I've been wrong. <laughs> oh my goodness. But the Bible's never wrong. The Bible is sufficient. It is infallible. And we stake our eternity on its truths. Peter, when he had rejected the words of Christ the night before his death, you remember this, Jesus spoke that he was going to be arrested and he was going to suffer and be nailed to a cross and raised again. And Peter somewhere turned all that off and went to his own thinking and began to rebuke. In fact, the Bible says in chapter 16 there of Matthew that, that, Jesus, that he pulls Jesus aside and he rebuked him. The word rebuke means to expose error. We're going to see that word later in the text today. Um, uh, rebuked him, rebuked God in flesh, incarnate. You know what happened? Jesus pulled him aside and he says, get behind me, Satan. See, that's where, that's where Whitfield got that. When you think outside of God, you become a tool for Satan. You're, you're a stumbling block to me. And then Jesus said this one. This is such a key. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. So often, counsel gets given that is not in God's interest, but it is in the interest of man. This is where we begin to realize that we have drifted away from the Scriptures. Well, again, there is an equality between Christ and the Word. They, they never go against each other. <laughs> they work in conjunction. Jesus often spoke and said, uh, the words that my Father speaks, thus I speak. I mean, he, he always talks about their equality together. And so this morning, I want to remind you of that great sufficiency we find in Christ and in his word. Let's look at our first point and then we'll keep moving along. There can be no division between sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the word. Everything we need is found in Christ and in the finished work of his 
cross work. In fact, we are complete in Christ. I want to start in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll get to that passage that Pastor Bobby read just in a minute. But go to Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10 with me there. So I first want to remind you, because the equality of our sufficiency in Christ and the Scriptures really are married together in so many ways, I want to start and remind us who we are in Christ. Probably one of my favorite passages to talk about the sufficiency of Christ is Colossians chapter 2, particularly 9 and 10. Notice Paul writing to the church in Colossae that has just been surrounded by uh, all kinds of paganism and all kinds of uh, integration of the world and, and God and all those things. He had seen all that happen. They were trying to pull them into things that were not of the Lord. And so he takes them back and he reminds them not to be taken captive by philosophies and empty deceptions in verse 8. Not according to the traditions of men. That is a problem. We, we too often want to listen to what man has to say and not enough to what God's word has to say. Verse 9, he tells them, For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now there's some pertinent words there. All the fullness. This word fullness is, is a word that means lacking nothing. It's a root word of the word in the next Uh, phrase verse 10 that we're made complete so everything that God is was dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ not just in heaven before he came but in his incarnation in his in his incarnation he was everything God was he shared that deity he shared the character of God together he was not just some body that got indwelt by the spirit and did his little thing died on the cross and then left that Jesus in full humanity fully God represented the father and you looked on him and you saw him full of grace and truth notice the Bible says dwells in him in bodily form he's everything when we study the Bible and particularly in the Gospels, and we watch the life of Jesus Christ walking through this world, healing and providing miracles, but preaching and teaching that he alone was the way, the truth, and the life. When we see that, that is God incarnate in Christ, sharing that deity, sharing that full character of God together. But then look at verse 10. There's such a good reminder. In him, Paul loves these little prepositional phrases to remind us of our position. In him, you have been made complete. What a marvelous term. Plerao is the word there, and it's in a perfect passive. It means it's something that God planned in the past and and accomplished and then has eternal ramifications, but it's passive because you didn't do it. He gave it to you. You've been put in him, and you've been made complete. Again, the idea is lacking nothing, fully complete. It's finished is the idea here. That's our position in Jesus Christ. We're complete. And notice it says at the end of the verse, he is head over all rule and authority. There's no one above him. And and the Bible says we're in him and he's in us. Think about that. The one who has all rule and has all authority, I have an eternal relationship with. He's in me and I'm in him. And I'm caught in this Trinitarian love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and there we are all in Him. What are you missing? What do you, ha- what do you need that He can't provide? And so here we look at that sufficiency of Christ. But turn with me to John chapter 1, and, and now we begin to make the connection of how Jesus is looked at. And there's terms that are chosen, inspired by God to be written down by the apostle John here that help us understand and make that connection between love Christ and love his word. You know these verses. We love them. The religions of the world attack them and twist them and take them out of context and move verbs around and so forth. But we, we, we love these verses. John starts out his great recording of the life of Christ and the person of Christ long after maybe even some of the other disciples who were passed away. He's one of the last writers. He says, in the beginning was the word. It's a statement of eternity. He's the word. 
And maybe you don't know, maybe you've opened your Bible and you've never heard this before and you're going, well, somewhere this word was in the beginning. Before there was nothing, he was there is the idea here. So whoever this word is, this is something that's been around for a long time. The word there is logos. You probably know that. It simply was a, a Greek, very strong Greek word that spoke of something that had all power, all authority, and all wisdom. Paul picks up on this, says in uh, Colossians 1.21, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. So whoever this is, I, I think I'm leaning towards you, helping you understand this, this is Christ. He has all wisdom, he has all power, and he has all authority. And notice it says, and the word was with God. And so there's this standing with equality. He wasn't standing behind him or underneath him. He was with God, and he's been there from the beginning. And so it's a statement of God and Christ standing face-to-face in equality as creator, sustainer, and planner of all things. Notice the last statement just nails us. And the word was God. And why don't they just say Jesus? Because if you drop down to verse 14, we figure out, we figure out pretty much this is Jesus. And the word became flesh. Well, who was that? That has to be Christ. That's the incarnation, isn't it? And notice that this word, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived among us. He was born among us. He walked among us. He healed among us. He taught among us. He died among us, John's saying. He rose from the dead and ascended among us. And John goes further and he says, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of Father. Nothing else, the unique one. This could not be anything else or anyone else. It has to be the full measure of the glory of God seen in human form. And so he relates it as saying, full of grace and truth. What a statement about the Father. That's what Moses saw when he came In the cleft of the rock, he saw him full of grace and truth. And when Jesus came to this earth, and so we understand that the word represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this connection to him. He is is connected to the term word. And so there's no no by coincidence that this is called the word of God. John, when he later writes his first epistle in chapter 1, verse 1, says what was from the beginning. He's back to this thing, this understanding of the eternality of Jesus Christ. What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, and what we've touched with our hands concerning the words of life. What a great connection between Jesus Christ and the Bible. It doesn't take us long to hear Peter, and we looked at this last week, when Everyone else is deserting Jesus. All the other so-called disciples are leaving him because he taught you must consume me. I must be everything to you. You must take me in. Jesus says, are you leaving too? And Peter, speaking for the group, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. There is such a connection between Jesus and the scriptures. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, we see the Lord returning and clothed in a robes dipped in blood. He's coming in judgment, and his name is called the Word of God. As he's written, writes to the uh, seven churches, and particularly to Laodicea, he's called faithful and true witness. Jesus himself says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In his high priestly prayer, just right before his arrest, says, Lord, sanctify them. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so there's this amazing connection to loving Christ and loving his word. Today, we have a lot of people who, oh, they're really big into Jesus. Jesus is great. But then they reject the truth of the scriptures. And so the Bible, that tells us that they're rejecting the scriptures as well. You can't have Jesus and not have the Bible. You can't have the Bible, the true Bible, and not have the true Jesus. They come together. It's impossible to separate them. And so Christ and his word will never contradict one another. They are sufficient. They're given to us. We have Christ. We're placed permanently in him. And then we have his word to know him, to know God, to know how to live for him with joy of serving our Savior.
Well, look at our next thought. Number two, Scripture is our supreme authority in all matters of life and godliness. Let's go to that text that Pastor Bobby read. We'll just take a peek at this for a moment. Again, I'm going to warm up to a, a, a deeper lesson on this next week on, on the Scriptures. I think one you'll truly enjoy, and, and I, I, I trust even today it'll help you want to read your Bible more. But this passage is towards the end of Paul's ministry. He dies shortly after writing this last inspired letter to Timothy. And he is encouraging Timothy. Things are difficult. You start the text off, and the last days were difficult times to come. Notice verse 2, men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of themselves. Man loves himself. And he loves to point out where other people are wrong. <laughs> That's just part of our, <laughs> even as Christians, our unredeemed humanness. He loves himself. He loves money. He's boastful. He's arrogant. He's a reviler. He's disobedient to his parents. He's ungrateful and holy, unloving, irrecyclable, um, malice gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, and they hold to a form of godliness. They act like something on, on the outside, and inside it is a mess. Sound like our society? Problem is, he's writing to the church. And this is where things can go awry. So verse 10, he starts to challenge Timothy. He knows that Timothy has to hold the line. He has to preach the word. He's going to tell him in the next chapter, preach the word in season and out of season. When they love you and when they hate you, hang on, preach the word. (laughs) And so he tells him how to get there. How do you just do that? Well, there's a way to that. Look at verse 10. Now you, following my teachings, my conduct, purposes, faith, patience, love, and perseverance those are all wonderful things they're only kind of fruit of the spirit type things he was taught by apostle paul he was a protege to him he was trained to to listen to what he was teaching god was revealing truth through paul at the time the scriptures were being recorded and he was to apply that teaching to his life it was to affect his conduct isn't that interesting teaching biblical teaching should affect the conduct of a believer and yet so often we may walk out there and forget what was ever said because something didn't go the way we want it. Notice there's a purpose. Paul had a clear purpose in what he was doing. His purpose was to exalt and glorify his Savior in all that he did. He wanted Timothy to do that. Notice faith and patience and love, these great fruits of the Spirit are all products of the teaching of God's Word. But then he gets to 11, and this is where it gets a little difficult. We go, okay, I'm good with all that in 10. And then it gets tough. Persecution and suffering. Follow my persecution and my suffering. Do you love Jesus and his word enough to be persecuted for it and even suffer for it, Timothy? He's challenging him here. And he gives an example. They all knew what happened. It's hard to read the book of Acts and see this. Such has happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. I mean, those were devastating places. Stoned and left for dead, pursued like a dog. They wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him on every aspect. They would follow him from town to town, try to destroy his ministry. And and remember, those were all, quote, religious people. They were not the world. This was coming from religious people. We sadden at this, but Paul's saying, Timothy, follow my persecution, follow my suffering, what persecution I endured, but notice, you heard this as Pastor Robbie read it, out of them all the Lord rescued me. Isn't that beautiful? You know, well, he got his head chopped off by Nero. Yeah, and guess where he went? To be in glory. I, uh, this is my interpretation. I think he's like, yeah, drop the guillotine. I'm done. <laughs> I've been poured out. I've run the race. I've finished the face. Let me go home. <laughs> I think that's where he was. And he won. He endured. And the Lord did rescue him all that. But look at verse 12. What a good admonition for us. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a flat-out statement. It's not a suggestion in any way. Look at that statement. Are you in this verse? Am I in this verse? Look at verse 12. Is this me? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly 
godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you ever been persecuted for anything? Falsely accused, blamed for anything, for being a Christian, for standing on the truth. Have, have you ever suffered for that? The Bible says anyone who desires to live a Christian life, a godly life in Christ. Notice the prepositional phrases are so important. In Christ, not in you, not in your church, not in who you think your, your identity may be. In, but if you're identified in Christ, you're going to suffer. It just comes. And it comes from people close to us often. And then he reminds us, look at the world we live in, verse 13, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And that word impostors is something to look at. Impostors make, them out, make themselves out to be someone they're not, but act like someone they, are, they think they are. Our, our worst troubles in Christianity most of the time come from our midst. Paul reminds them, why do you bite and devour one another? This is what happens. But they're going to grow worse. There are people who have left the faith. There are people who have abandoned orthodoxy from the scriptures. They do not teach what the Bible teaches anymore. And they often attack those who do. And there's such deception. The word of faith movement is such a deception. So many people have bought into it that God has given them some kind of word. Every time I've been approached with this, they've been dead wrong. But they, they say, look, I'm not responsible for it. I just give it to you. You're dead wrong. You're not coming with God's word. See, that's where that deception comes in. And Paul wanted Timothy not to be a part of that. So he turns his attention. And he says, look, continue the things you've learned and become convinced of. I hope you're not convinced that somehow God's giving you internal impressions. Now, wisdom, because you study your Bible, right? Wisdom and biblical counsel is a whole other thing. Yes, if you know your Bible, you're able to sit with a sister or a brother in the Lord and say, hey, brother and sister, hey, here's what the Word says. Here's what we probably should be doing here. Oh, that's completely different. Paul says, look, are you convinced of these things? Things you've learned from me. And notice it started not just when Paul got around, uh, Timothy got around Paul, probably somewhere around the age of 15. He was taught with this as a child. What good encouragement parents teach your children the word teach them the sacred writings is the term here they'll change them they'll change their lives change timothy's remember he has a greek father and a jewish mother for all intents and purposes most theologians believe his mother was a believer in the faith and his father was not it was a difficult, challenging situation. But notice they were taught. He was taught, the Bible tells us, El place that his mother and his grandmother were involved in this. And that from childhood, verse 15, you have known, look at this, I love this term, the sacred writings. And what do the sacred writings do? They're able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that sacred writings connected to Jesus Christ brings you to salvation. Some of you were saved, maybe not um, sitting in a church service. Maybe someone was just sharing the faith with you and God saved you at that time. But I promise you, somewhere in that conversion, they use God's word because that's what he uses to convert people from pagans, brings them out of the darkness into the light. This is what he does. And so he's reminding him, man, things are going to get worse. Persecution's coming. Men are going to be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Wow, we're there. Love the scriptures. So that's where I got all this, right? Love Christ, love his word, love his people. Notice, he goes on to remind them all scriptures. Now that all scriptures goes back to the sacred writings, same too. He's talking about the same thing here. All scriptures. And in Paul's mind, whether he understood everything he was writing was inspired or not, we don't know. Peter says, listen to the words of Paul, even though they are hard sayings because he's speaking for God. I mean, it's an amazing statement that Peter makes about him. He says, all scriptures are inspired by God. You know that word, good Bible students, God what? Breathed. It's God exercising power to breathe out 
It's his work of God. He breathes out his word and plants it into the hearts and minds of those he had penned the words of God that came down through them in in a supernatural way and the fact that he controlled their writing but yet used their personalities to write out his perfect word. And we have that to this day. And so we have not just some kind of writings. We have sacred writings. They're holy. That means they're without evil. That's why I love that word sacred so much. It brings us back to the holiness of God's word. God is holy, so all that he says must be holy, right? And so he says, look, this is all these scriptures are inspired by God. They're the work of God. They're the breath of God. And notice they're profitable for teaching. There's great, what he's saying, Timothy, there's so much value in the word of God. The church and those you are trying to minister, chose you're trying to shepherd, they're going to they're run to their own thoughts. You've got to bring them back. You're going to have to bring them back time and time and time again to the profitability, the value of God's word. That's what you need to do. That's what preachers are called to do. That's what moms and dads are called to do. Grandparents. Bring them back to what's profitable, brothers and sisters. Don't let them stray into their own thinking. Boy, you, you know what it is, right? You know if your mind goes, if you let your mind go and you don't take captive the words of, that are in your brain that, and, and just let the things get out that can, that can come up in your mind and your heart, you know how dangerous that is? And so we take captive through the word of God. There, the, the word of God is so profitable. We're going to look at this next week. How profitable it is. I'll, I'll get back to that. And then you notice he says, for reproof. The word reproof is the same word that Paul, uh, Peter was trying to do to, t- to Jesus Christ. He tried to reprove him. It means to expose error. Now, I love this because every one of us have erroneous thoughts at times. Do you know that? I know maybe that's news to you or to your spouse. You have wrong thinking on something. You don't have it all figured out. I don't either. I need the all-sufficient scriptures to reprove me, to expose error. That's what it does. And if you don't read it, guess what you're going to do? You may stay in that air, and then you may become a deceiver versus one who's an encourager. It happens all the time. There's all kinds of people raised in Bible-teaching churches that drifted off into nonsense, heretical stuff now, speaking for God and, and now abandoning the Bible. We run into people all the time says, we don't even know why the, the Old Testament's even there. The character of God? Let's just start with that. Five first five words in the beginning, God. We'll start there. Well, well, we, you know, well, God's now speaking above the scriptures. So now longer, this is no longer sufficient. Be careful what you say to one another. It is God and God alone who speaks perfectly. And he may need to reproof you and me. And that's what the scriptures do. Notice this word correction. It is the idea of making something right again. You know, sometimes we're just wrong. Sometimes we get in a wrong direction. We get in a wrong funk in some ways. The scriptures correct us. They, they, they make an improvement to where we're at. We actually get the word improvement, right? We can get the word to improve from this. And then for training in righteousness, we, again, we get the idea of instruction or discipline or preparation to live righteously. Do you want to live right before God? Don't get lost in that word righteousness. People beat that word all the time. It's living right according to God. That's what it means. See, the word of God is going to do that for us. And Paul wraps us all together up for this young pastor that's being sent out, Timothy, and says, so that the man of God, or I I think application-wise we can say for the person of God, may be adequate, equipped, Look at this, for every good work. Are you married, single, retired, um, working, overworked? uh, Whatever you are, the word of God will equip you. But so often we try to go out the door without them. Well, this has been a problem in the church for years. Um, The church began to drift away and then some reformers came along. And they wrote the solaces, didn't they? In fact, the five great solaces came out of Martin Luther's 95 Theses that he nailed on Wittenberg's door. 
And they, they were attempt to try to rescue the Roman Catholic Church. Luther never had in his mind to, to start something new. That was not his goal. His, his goal was to bring reformation to the church. He loved the church. He was saved in the church in a sense as a monk in it. Um, he had poured everything in it. He did not want it to go away and not be of God. And so he, he was greatly burdened by these things. And so out of this 95 thesis came these five Sola, sola scriptoria, which we're talking about today. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christos, Christ alone. Sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. And these five solaces developed in 1517 out of that thesis just because he was watching the perversion of God's word. You will say, well, what was going on? Well, the Roman Catholics taught that the foundation for faith and practice was a combination of some scriptures, sacred traditions, the teachings of the magistrum, and the Pope. That, that, was, that was the foundation for faith. And the reformers said, no, our foundation is scripture alone. There cannot be any other human part of that. That was where they took their stand on it. Then the Catholic Church taught that we were saved through a combination of God's grace and the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works and, and even accumulation of the merits from past saints. The Reformers said, no, <laughs> salvation's by grace alone, period. We add nothing to this. Now we're in a lot of trouble if some dead guy buried somewhere has got to get me in there. But that's where it's headed. The Catholic Church had taught that we were justified by faith in the works that we produce, which together became righteousness of some way. This justifying work of Christ, and you're going to mix our works with his? And then God would infuse that into us to give us faith? That's what they taught, still teach to this day, brothers and sisters. It, remember we talked about deception. You move away from God's word, that's where it happens. So the reformers said, no, we are justified by faith alone. We receive righteousness alien of ourselves was the words they used. But that, we, that, but that is the righteousness of Christ that God freely credits to our account for those who believe. It's not a culmination of our works and somebody else's. It's heresy. Then the Catholic Church taught that we were saved by merits of Christ and the saints. And that we approach God through Christ, through saints, through Mary, who all pray and intercede for us. Guess what the Reformers' first word was? No. <laughs> we, are, we are saved by the merits of Christ Jesus alone. And we come to God through Christ alone. His work alone is finished and complete. Nothing at it. As soon as you add it, oh, you soiled it. You are not saved by your works and the works of Christ. We are empty-handed. It is solely by the grace of God through faith in him that even that faith has to be handed down. You don't repent without him giving you faith. Dead people don't believe. Dead people don't walk. Oh, it's, it's glorious. And then we come to that aspect of this. The Catholic Church adhered to what Martin Luther called uh, the theology of glory. Uh, this was in opposition to the theology of the cross. And what they said is in which the glory of a sinner's salvation can be attributed partly to Christ, partly to Mary, partly to the saints, and partly to the sinner himself. The reformer said, no, <laughs> only one true gospel in which all glory goes to God. Sola Dei Gloria. How oh, that's what makes worshipers. That's what makes you sing. As Hayward and the team and the choir leads us, that truth, you, you can sing because you just like songs, but when it's really coming from your heart, when you really start to really praise the Lord, it's because you realize I would have nothing if it were not for the glory of God. See, that's why we are, quote, reformed. We're biblicists. All those truths are supported in the scriptures. And it's pressing right now. It's pressing need for Christians to affirm these truths. 
The church is moving away from this, and that's why we're seeing so many issues happen in the American church. And so when we speak of this, when we look at what Timothy is getting written to him from Paul, it means that the scriptures are supreme authority on all matters of life and godliness. The scripture simply teaches us that all truths necessary for salvation in this spiritual life are taught explicitly or implicitly through the word of God to us. I have what I need in the scriptures. And listen, I know there's somebody going, whoa, wait a minute here. It is, I'm not saying that every thing in the Bible, everything in this world is covered. You're finding the grammar rules to, you know, Tagala. It's not in the scriptures. How to build a rocket and shoot it off of the cape. But what it is telling us is that everything we need to know how to trust God, we find more sure in the scriptures. And it stands above all other, all other authority in our lives. Peter said it was more sure in 2 Peter 1, 19 and following. And what's so fascinating about that text, I'm, I'm going to get to that next week. Let me just give you a preview. Is Peter just saw the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. He's relating back to the Mount of Transfiguration when, when the veil was dropped. Even, even his humanity, that veil was dropped. And they saw him for who he was. Peter goes on and said, the word of God's better than that. And that was an amazing experience. Does that not tell us not to be very, very careful with our experiences? Peter loved the scriptures. So the scriptures is the highest and supreme authority on all matters. It only speaks the truth. It is airless. It is sacred. It is holy. And it's binding on our consciences, brothers and sisters. You want your conscience to be seared? Don't read the Bible. How do men and women do things to one another that call themselves Christians? How did they get to that point? They quit believing the scriptures. And your conscience will be seared. Oh, I don't want a seared conscience. You want a, a conscience that's cared for and, and brought to an understanding through the word of God. You want your conscience to be sensitive to what God says is right. Westminster wrote this way back, 1646, in their Westminster Convection. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is, neither, is either expressly set down in scriptures or by good and necessary consequence may be deducted from scriptures un, unto with which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. So when people come up and say, the Spirit of God told me this, no, he didn't. Unless you come packing the scriptures, then we'll talk. Our own statement of faith reads, I pulled out some of these. We believe that the sole and final authority of the church is the Bible, which includes all 66 books of Old and New Testament. We believe that every word of the original autographs is God-breathed. Therefore, the scriptures are verbally inspired, inerrant, infallible, totally sufficient, trustworthy for doctrine instruction. We believe the scriptures are sufficient and with, and with the guiding effort of the Holy Spirit are entirely adequate for every spiritual or emotional need and are infinitely superior to all human understanding and wisdom. We believe in the clarity of scripture and its relevance for the world today. It is consistent within itself and is properly inter interpreted in a literal, grammatical, and historical sense. The scripture is the complete revelation of God that he wants us to have now. That's what we believe. And when you became a member here, you signed that. Do you still hold to those truths? Let me just finish with some encouraging thoughts. Number three. Because we have to work through these things. And what happens when we come into church? Where does our minds go? And so I jotted down a few things. And we'll just look at this real briefly. We can come back to this later. But um, just before we get into the table. Because that, that's right out of the word of God as well. How do you prepare our hearts to receive the proclaimed word? I'm already working on next week's one. How do you receive the word of God personally when you study it for yourself? Uh, I'm going to give you some thoughts along that way. But, but say you're coming into church here. Here's kind of where I'm going with this. When you're coming to worship. Number one, A here, um, I think it's up behind me. Be careful and persistent to attend every service. 
you can't say, oh, I'm under the word of God, but I don't come. And again, people are sick, and that's why we have live streams, and there's, there, yes, we understand that there's probably many watching now there. But be persistent to attend every service. You've got to come. You've got to put yourself under the word of God so that then on your own you'll study the word of God. Give the meeting of the church a priority to all human institutions. See, these are just good challenging questions. Is church the priority for me in my life? Or is something else happening, I'm just going to go over and do that. And if we can work out this month where we get to church once or twice, maybe that'll be good. I mean, the writer of Scripture said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. God sees that as important. B, listen carefully to God's word being proclaimed. They say, I remember in seminary, they say there, all the studies, they hear only about 10% of what you say when you preach from the pulpit. That was hard to hear in seminary. You know, I'm going to do all that work. I'm going to study 8 to 20 hours. I'm going to dig into the scriptures, present what the Bible says, and only I hear 10% of it. <laughs> I hope we're not that church. <laughs> I don't think we are. But listen carefully to God's word being proclaimed. Take notes of important points. Mark your Bible. Highlight them. You can do that. Mine's just written all over. I think you can see that from there. I write in pencil because it could be wrong. <laughs> Mark your Bibles. Then you'll come back to that someday in your daily reading. You go, oh, I remember that. It was so good. I, that's right. This is, this is the truth of God's word, and it stirs your heart again. See, prepare your heart by praying for yourself before you come into worship. Take a secret poll. Don't raise your hand, please. How many of you prayed before you sat down that you would be a great hearer of God's word today? I know we came in, we, there's there so-and-so, I haven't seen them, or boy, they lost a loved one, I'm going to go minister. I know so much of that's going on. But do we stop for a moment? That's really what our call to worship is about, to call us, get us thinking biblically about what God's about ready to do. He's about ready to give us his word. What an amazing thing. D, pray for the preaching of the word before, during, and after the service. I value the men that often meet with me, my own elders, other men who come into my office and pray with me. I need that. You know how difficult it is to stand here and say, thus says God. It's a daunting task. I need your prayers. That We need your prayers. All of us that we would pray that the word of God would not return void, that it would do and accomplish what it's sent out to do. Evaluate what you hear by the word of God. Some so often, men and women come up to me afterwards and they'll say, Pastor, as you were speaking on this, man, I couldn't but help but think of this passage. I absolutely love that. Because that means they are connected. They are in. Because they're going, wow, that's just like where I read this week. And, and there's a connection to those passages because the Bible interprets the scriptures, interprets scripture. And there's this connection going on because you're thinking biblically now. I love that. Evaluate it. Think about it through the word of God. F, humbly receive the truth proclaimed as God speaking to you, not just the human speaker. You talk to any preacher worth his salt, one of the things we hate is that our names are often spoke of after the sermon. Well, that was a good one. Nah, he wasn't very good today. We don't lie. He went too long. He did this. He did that. He did those. Uh, we don't like that. And, and, may, and we're not perfect men at all, and we're always trying to get better at what we do. But... Don't speak about the human speaker. Speak about God. Gee, think about the passage preached. Meditate on it. Room, uh, Psalms 1 uses that word to ruminate, to, to, to chew on it and take it down like the cow does a cud and bring it back up and think about it again and get more nutrients out of it. Swallow it and then take it back up later and think about it. That's the idea that we come to the word of God. We meditate on it, thinking of ways to apply it to our daily life. Application is important, and I strive to make that. But look, you make application to the Word of God. You're a Christian. Apply it to your life. Imagine what we preach to every day in here. We got little children in here to, to people in their 80s and 90s. We have people who have suffered all kinds of things, going to everything you can imagine. Application is so wide. 
But God's word will nail every one of it. See, Paul told Timothy, preach the word. That's what you need. You need the word. You take that word. Be humble before God's word. And I promise you'll go, I know how to apply this. That's what he'll do with you. H, talk about the passage with others after the service. Discuss the truths with your family. Use the outline. Get into a discussion. I, so often I'll get an email or someone will come up to me later in the week and say, hey, you know, we went home and we were chatting about that, and this is what my kids said to me. Man, that just is so encouraging. That means they were talking about the truth of God's word. Read ahead each week if you can. Now, I'm, I'm in a little series here, but eventually I'm headed for the book of First Thessalonians after the first of the year probably, after we get through Christmas and all those things. And, and, and if you're following us in, on Wednesday nights, you know I'm preaching through the Pentateuch and read through. And so often I love some of our, our folks on Wednesday night. Boy, they come in and their Bibles are open. I look at them and they're on whatever chapter, Numbers 35, Numbers 36. They're reading it ahead. They want to know. And then finally, seek to obey what you hear. Pray for the grace of God to be a doer of the word. Father, so much to be said on your word. It is so glorious, so beautiful, so perfect. Your word is sacred. It's holy. It is to be cherished as something holy without error. It is to reproof us and correct us and discipline us and direct us and instruct us. And Lord, I pray that every one of us would take the word of God personally for ourselves. Then you'll give us opportunity to help. Then you'll give us opportunity to care for somebody else and minister to them. But Lord, may we be doers of the word first and foremost. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.